Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Jeremy Kai, who is the founder and CEO of Italic. The two-year-old retailer sells brandless fashion and home goods at cost, and it transitioned to a membership model last month. I wanted to ask Kai about the risks of launching a membership-driven business during the pandemic and to what extent fashion shoppers miss logos when they're gone. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. Thank you for being here. So let's set it up. You we talked. You talked with Glossy at the very start of it all. Um, at the time, um, Danny and my team tackled the story. I knew of it as a. It, you you focused on accessories. There were some great bags, um, but did it start fashion focused, accessories focused? What was the business model at the very beginning? Two thousand eighteen. Yeah, that's actually. Um, uh, it kind of brings us back to. Um, uh, full circle, because when we first launched in 2018, we actually launched as, you know, a, a membership. And um, as you you mentioned at the time, we had handbags, we had scarves, we had eyewear. But, you know, to the extent of our product assortment, that was it. And to be honest with you, it was pretty limited. I know that many people out there would probably not sign up for a membership if that was all we offered, um, unless you're really, you know, excited about those three categories and purchase a lot of handbags or, or eyewear. Um, so, so for us, you know, um, uh, very quickly we realized, Hey, one of our core, um, you know, missing pieces was our supply chain and our product assortment at the time. And, um, you know, the goal was always to come back to, um, offering a membership. We think it's a really differentiated value proposition in a, in a crowded market of, you know, uh, brands that are offering, you know, the next thing that's sold online. Yes. But, um, but for us, um, you know, we wanted to build out that assortment first. So we actually transitioned from that um, that membership model basically into a more tr- uh, standard transactional direct consumer model um, within the next two to three months. And we pulled that membership initially. Um, in terms of the actual, you know, next couple of years, we really uh, operated that standard direct to consumer, you know, playbook of um, of selling products at a markup. And really, the intention there was not to um, you know, build a, a large customer base, but instead to get the um, the product assortment to a place where we felt confident in um, being able to launch the membership option again. Um, yeah. And that came earlier, you know, this year when we had, you know, over a thousand SKUs um, and, uh, and a much higher frequency of purchase that we were seeing, um, to which we felt, you know, hey, now's actually a good time to go back to that model. Um, yes. Yeah. Over a thousand. Yeah. It says, unlike you need to update your Instagram because it says 800. Oof, <laughs> Are you yeah. just growing that fast? Are you growing all the time? I noticed there's a, there's a field on your website where it says, you know, if you are a factory, a manufacturer uh, that would like to partner with us, uh, contact us. Are you seeing a lot of demand? Especially now, I would think that a lot of them are seeing canceled orders. They're left with a bunch of inventory. I'm, it's a different uh, environment than maybe even a year ago. Yeah, I mean that's actually a really good question, and and um, you know I think for our business we we saw it in um, uh, I would say two ways for uh, the supplier demand. So so I guess before I get into how we actually you know take on manufacturers, um, our our vendor relationship is very different than your standard you know branded supply chain in which we're not typically purchasing our inventory um, uh, from our manufacturers. Instead, we actually co invest in um, the inventory and sales of the. Um, uh, of the products that we, you know, together would launch with that manufacturer. So it takes a lot mm-hmm. of time for us to develop, audit, make sure that this is the right partner for the category. Um, sometimes years, um, 
in the case of our jewelry manufacturer, for example, we went through literally you know at least twenty um, options before we settled on one we were excited about um, to to um, to even launch a category. So, in terms of actually you know uh, uh, the manufacturer demand, um, we do design and develop all of our products now. That that was different in twenty eighteen, yeah. um, where we were you know more flexible about taking on what manufacturers previously had, but. In terms of um, the manufacturer domain, I would say in 2019, we really saw it in the, in the form of, um, uh, and this was not expected, but we saw it in the form of um, uh, manufacturers looking for new revenue streams after the, the tariff wars or, or trade wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then this year, you know, uh, it actually started, I would say, in Q1. You know, we, we always over-order um, prior to Chinese New Year. We have a lot of um, manufacturers in Asia. But um, but we we saw a pretty hefty hit in um, uh, our manufacturing base. Uh, again, it was the same reason. I think they um, it was exactly like you said. They had canceled orders. They had excess uh, capacity, and they wanted to diversify their revenue stream to de-risk, you know, um, future uh, future clients canceling orders or even yeah. um, just developing a new revenue stream um, for their own business. So. Um, we saw a lot of signups during that. And, and for what it's worth, I think we used to have a really hard time, you know, convincing these manufacturers, um, because we were in an unproven brand. We were, um, uh, you know, we were at the time, um, it basically asking them, Hey, you know, do something that you've never done before, which is invest in your own inventory, take on inventory risk, um, which for all intents and purposes is something that I don't recommend any standard brands do, um, <laughs> But uh, but for us, you know, it's a critical part of the model, and we were able to um, uh, convince a couple early on. But now that we had a lot more historical success and, and case studies with our existing manufacturer base, that allowed us a lot of, you know, it gained a lot of merit in terms of getting um, new manufacturers and new categories on board. Yeah, I also saw on your site on that sign up that you are offering them uh, real time data. You're giving them a lot of feedback. Talk to me about the feedback loop. Is that still happening? Are you um, going to your customers requesting that? I just I know being like a rent the runway customer and they've got a membership and they are constantly requesting feedback. Um, So tell me about that. Yeah. um, So I would say that I I guess there were two two parts of that question. So so the the first part in terms of our supplier tools, um, you know, most whether you're e-commerce, traditional, incumbent, you know, most of the times what your typical relationship with your manufacturers, either through your, um, you know, your ERP system, your inventory management system, you're basically just placing a PO, whether that's through Excel or, or something else like that. And that's the extent of it. The manufacturer, maybe you'll send them annual plans or forecasts, but really, you know, they don't see um, uh, beyond that in terms of your, your business. Whereas for us, like they are genuinely a part of, the financial model. Um, they have to be invested in the inventory. They have to believe in the ability for us to sell their products. Um, so we did have to invest a lot in building that supplier reporting uh, more so than your standard brand because they had to have that additional trust and we have to provide that transparency um, in terms of our own sell-throughs. So, um, so I think in terms of the, the supplier reporting, that's only increased. You know, we, we offer a, a couple of dashboards now for anyone to log in, see real-time sales, um, but also get more cohort level or even um, seasonality um, baked into the to, to the reports. So um, uh, in terms of the actual product development, this is a you know something we've worked towards for a very long time. Um, I can say with confidence, you know, and <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but we're you know we're not like a classic New York cool direct to consumer brand. I think we can get there for sure, but 
you know, for us, like we're a much more data driven um, a brand and, and we really do constantly survey um, our, our non-members and our members. So the way we view merchandising is both on a qualitative level and a quantitative. Um, on the quantitative level, it's, it's actually very straightforward. We collect surveys um, looking at the product requests that come in from people who have yet to sign up. And then we also collect the same survey, but um, attribute it to existing members. Um, so, uh, so we're seeing like, okay, what are our current members looking for? Um, and then when we were actually making merchandising decisions based on the numbers, at least we want to see either a lift in acquisition or conversion. Mm -hmm. Um, so we believe if we introduce this product, you know, it'll provide an incremental lift to our ability to acquire or convert a new member based on, you know, what we've seen historically being requested. Um, and then secondly, we see, you know, on the uh, existing member side, you know, what are products that we believe will provide an even better membership experience, um, allow us to better retain our members, um, continue to provide excitement for them. And this is, I, I think, how, how we've, while there's definitely overlap, we've historically seen new members request new categories and new products that they believe us to be missing. Um, and that's a great, you know, data-driven indication of what we um, uh, what we should make. And then secondly, on the retention side, we typically see that being in the form of new variants, new colors, new SKUs on existing products. Um, right. So I love this, you know, uh, this, this sheet set, but I really want it in a, you know, Lyocell or Eucalyptus, you know, option, or I want it totally. in a baby blue versus a white. Um, and then on the qualitative side, it's you know, I think it's fairly straightforward the, the way we have um, uh, our merchandising uh, benchmarks. So one, you know, is this a category that is inherently already natively online? Did other brands or, you know, um, companies already do education? So we're not going to be the first ones doing it. Um, you know, we like to see existing traction in a market um, yeah. before we develop a category in it. You know, is it high margin already? So we really value having products that are high perceived value. So um, because Italic is so focused on value being, um, you know, a great quality product at a, a fair price point, um, we want to see a high difference between our sales price and the, the sales price of our, our competitors. Um, and then finally, we don't really want to see any, you know, technical complexity. So we don't ever want to go into, maybe we will one day when we reach sufficient <laughs> scale, but um, we, we probably won't go into things like razors or, you know, subscription products or logistically you know, complex products. Um, custom products. Those are things that, you know, while they're great markets and really interesting, um, it's not for our business model. Yes. Let's talk about the fact that you're not a cool New York brand, <laughs> as you <laughs> okay. said. So are you not cool or are you not in New York? <laughs> Where Both. are you based right now? Where's your team? <laughs> yeah, well, right now we, we have, um, I guess, like what we call HQ Plus. So we have uh, uh, the majority of our team is based in Los Angeles. We have an office um, on the west side. Um, and we also have a, uh, a small off office in Asia as well. Um, and then we work with a number of, of um, uh, you know, agencies or contractors around the world. Um, uh, so we're not in New York, but we do work <laughs> with creatives there. Um, and, and, and this isn't really a knock on, on that model whatsoever. I think like, we right. just, in my opinion, we just really know, you know, if we have to be objective, we're not trying to pretend that we are, um, uh, something that we're not. Uh, and also yeah. I think for Italic, you know, the, the goal really is to reach smart customers. It's not someone who wants to buy into um, a specific brand or community or story. We have all those things. And I think we have a really you know strong story, really strong community and a strong brand in its own right. But it's not, it's definitively not, you know, something that you would go to if you wanted to buy the trendy or cool piece, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. 
your factories. Um, I know when we initially covered you, uh, you were just doing the accessories. We really hyped up the fact that it was um, manufacturers in Italy. Um, I would think that, you know, current situation, no travel happening or minimal travel happening. Um, first of all, are your factories, your manu manufacturers all over the world now? And has this been a huge obstacle in the last couple of months? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I will say, you know, our manufacturing base, we, um, we are fairly global. So we have, you know, North American manufacturers, we have, um, uh, European manufacturers, and we also have Asian manufacturers. Um, and really, I would say that the, the, the impact, um, uh, started in Asia in um, really in, in late January, early February. So right at the peak of Chinese New Year, um, when, when, um, frankly, like it's one of the most critical times for any, um, uh, any planning or to, to be placing orders and reorders. Um, so, uh, so that that impacted us, um, you know, immediately there. But then it actually spread to, like you said, um, Italy, Portugal, um, Spain, um, France, where we we saw uh, I would say two to three months of um, of stoppage in terms of taking on new orders. Um, and then it actually made it its way into the U.S., where you know we we worked with a couple of companies, for example, in the Los Angeles garment district, and um, uh, they were later to take. Um, they were a little bit slower to take action than, than let's say the European or Asian counterparts. So, yeah. um, so that's still, you know, I, I think that's actually still going on. It's not like, um, everything has returned to normal, but I will say in terms of, you know, taking on new manufacturers and taking on new, um, vendors, it's, it's actually been, um, if anything, it's been about the same as what we expected in 28, uh, 2019. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, if anything, I think it's accelerated a lot of the digital adoption. You know, most of these manufacturers that we work with, they are not, um, they're not small merchants. They're very large scale, you know, productions. Um, and I think for them, this kind of opened their eyes in terms of, hey, we really need to find new revenue channels or at least de-risk our current um, wholesale client base. Um, and I think Italic offers a really good option for them. Yes. Why now? Why July? Um, why did it make sense to, again, launch a membership? I know, you know, a lot of brands are telling us that customers are scared. A lot of them, you know, they have less money to play with or to buy things that are maybe not necessities. Um, and to kind of be locked into $100 out of the gate um, for the year. And you don't know if maybe, I mean, you can tell me, I know like your first purchase, you see the payback, but um, maybe they don't know to what extent they're going to buy home goods. They're going to buy fashion in the next year um, because yeah, everything that you buy, <laughs> it's not included yeah. in the membership. It's extra, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, I guess there's two ways to, to approach that, like the, on, on the, um, the timing reason. So um, we've been working towards this for a number of years. And, and to be honest with you, if COVID didn't happen, I think um, uh, we probably would have spent a little bit longer expanding our product line a little bit more before we were really fully ready to, um, to launch the membership. But I think really, I would say two to three, three things happen. One um, uh, was that we really hit what I believe is a critical saturation of the core products that we needed to make a membership, you know, worth your money and time. Um, and, uh, and we saw that in the form of, I guess, my second point, which is like our frequency of purchases and our lifetime values of our customer segments. Um, even on the transactional model where prices weren't as aggressive, um, they finally hit a point where we thought, okay, you're going to make your money back like very, very quickly. Once you purchase one of our products or you hear from a, a friend, 
um, we saw really high repeat purchase rates. So I think that gave us right. the conviction. And then finally, I think with COVID, um, it was exactly, exactly like you said, you know, I think people are, um, are becoming more value conscious. I think value being value conscious is always something that is not seasonal. It's not, um, uh, it's not cyclical either. I think it's always been in vogue, even though it's not something that I think people like to brand themselves as, right. um, you know, there's millions of Costco shoppers there's millions of people who really love, uh, let's say Spotify, for example, instead of purchasing the music outright. So I think, um, I think for us, like the, the, uh, the, the, the change in the, I guess the U S mindset, um, the shopping mindset of, you know, I want to buy things that will be a great deal. I want to feel smart about my purchases. Um, that accelerated our, our desire to actually go to market with the membership. And we started piloting it in, in April. Um, and yeah, the, the, the second point around, um, whether or not people want to purchase a hundred dollar subscription, it's still up in the air to be, you know, we're still, uh, an early stage startup. I think we're still figuring out um, a lot of our, our core you know, messaging points and, and metrics around this. But um, I think so, so I think the, the best way I can put it is memberships aren't for everyone. But for those people who are seeking and are open to taking on a new subscription product in their life, um, you know, I think Italic is actually a very, very easy math exercise to just do in your head. Like, yeah. hey, am I going to make my money back on $100 if I purchase one time? Um, and in over 90% of the time, like that is correct. Um, then I think it's actually a very smart, rational decision. It's not something that I think is tied to an emotional purchase. You know, we, we do drops and we do product launches, but they're not in the form of like buy it now and it's out forever. It's, it's really, Hey, you know, take your time to think about it. If you want to join, like there's no rush. We do have a wait list, but, um, but once you're off it, you know, you can feel free to make your decision then. But even despite that, you know, we see really high, um, we, we saw a lot higher conversion rates from our membership option than our transactional model. Okay, great. Talk, talking about making your money back. Tell me about, <laughs> um, you had a round of funding in there. Um, was it, talk to me about that. But also, um, do I understand it correctly that um, Italic is saying they take the membership cost. Um, the rest of what you're buying goes directly to the factories, to the, to the I, I almost said wholesale partner, but um, <laughs> to the manufacturer. Right. Um, and yeah, well, gosh, what is the goal or I mean, what does it take to make your money back or to become profitable um, to be successful? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the only real answer to that is getting a lot of members and making sure that they have a great experience in which they're loyal enough to stick around for multiple years. We're intentionally capping our own revenue at $100. You know, I, yeah. I think that was an intentional decision to make sure to um, deliver enough value and prove to them like, hey, this is worth sticking around for so that hopefully they become members for years to come, not just the first year in turn. Um, I think that's a very different model than your standard subscription box or monthly, you know, um, type of uh, subscription in commerce, at least, um, in which you have to be committed for the year upfront, um, which again is not for everyone, but I think there's, we've seen a lot of people out there who are really excited about that. Um, in terms of the, um, I guess in terms of the actual, you know, the, the, the funding and the, the model itself, you know, I think for us, like we basically ran the math and, and $100 made sense for us to be able to profitably acquire um, uh, members and make sure that they deliver, we, they have a great experience. But, you know, like you said, we're intentionally not taking margin on the, um, the product prices. So I, I will caveat it by saying, you know, um, it's not, uh, it's not the, the product cost alone. You know, we have to, for example, pad in, um, the, uh, the freight costs, so like ocean freight, we have to pad in, you know, our duties and tariffs oh, right. costs. Um, uh, but you know, outside from that, like 
the whole goal is like we are not profiting on the product sales. In fact, they're basically at prices that we're either breaking even, slightly making margin, or losing money on. And the goal really is to basically not make or not lose money on on the product uh, sales. Um, and I think people that 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 product pricing now allows us to p- compete very directly against competitors, whereas historically, you know, if you're on a markup or margin model, it's really difficult to use that messaging. Um, I think direct consumer right. brands rarely talk about price, and I think for good reason because basically over time you have to slightly either increase your prices, add new categories, et cetera, to develop you know longer lifetime values as your customer acquisition costs grow. But um, but for us, like price is a really big competitive uh, <laughs> advantage um, because we're literally not making money on it. So you know yeah. we can be pretty aggressive with how we price products. Yeah, that's changed, right? I feel like back in the day, direct to consumer brands they talked about cost uh, price quite a lot. Yeah. And- yeah. Exactly. What the heck? <laughs> what have you come to know? You mentioned customer acquisition. What have you come to know um, about what works for you? Um, even yes, as it as it relates to the direct to consumer model. Um, anyway, what what's working? Yeah, um, I think this is actually the the kind of foundational piece of the business, which at least for me, you know, in the first wave of the online, you know, what, what we now call digitally native brands or direct to consumer brands. Um, you know, the whole, the whole goal and all the messaging back then was really around, um, around value. So it was around, we're cutting out the middleman, we're democratizing luxury, you know, so how many times have you heard that? (laughs) Um, and, uh, and I think like those were really, you know, exciting times because I think for, um, the model at the time, it was not about, um, uh, replacing, you know, uh, or innovating on, on, um, like the the branding or the messaging or storytelling, all of which is still critically important. But really, for for these companies, um, you know, when they first started out, the messaging was around: okay, we want to take out the retailer margin and offer better quality at better prices than the traditional model would would allow. Um, and it's not like a you know a sexy message to say that nowadays, but I think um, it was really powerful because price does matter matter a lot in a purchasing decision. Um, you know, back then it wasn't about um, it, it was. I guess when people said cutting out the middleman, they were really referring to cutting out the retailer who would take, you know, 30 to 50% of, of the wholesale margin. Um, and, uh, but I think what has changed over the, the years is that now the, the model has shifted towards, you know, let's price high, um, but still use the same narrative of cutting out the middleman. But instead this time, you know, the, the middleman is not like a target or a Nordstrom's or a retailer. It's really, you know, if it's Facebook and Google and, and customer acquisition costs, to your point, and I promise I'll answer you directly in a second, <laughs> um, you know, have, have basically forced these direct-to-consumer models to operate the same as their predecessors, which is, you know, price 5 to 10x um, on, on cost of goods. Um, you know, assume that 30 to 50% of that, if not much more, if you're a venture-backed company, will yeah. probably go to customer acquisition cost and then hope that you can make some margin for yourself. Um, and that's bad for, in my opinion, that's bad for the customer. That's bad for the, um, the advertising and marketing ecosystem because it drives prices up. And it's also bad for the manufacturers because you're constantly, you know, looking to decrease cost. Um, manufacturers already make like 15 to 25% on top of cost of goods, which if, uh, if we're talking about a, on an actual final retail transaction, that might be four to 5% of the actual sales. So, you know, I think for us, like that was part of the whole mission is how do we get back to those roots of online commerce? How do we compete effectively? Um, uh, in, in a very, very saturated market with a unique differentiated value, value proposition. And, um, and, you know, I think the membership and our current messaging um, is, is uh, really how we do that. Yeah. Um, 
and then, yeah, I guess to answer you directly on customer acquisition costs, um, I think there was a playbook um, for venture-backed consumer commerce companies to you know, raise a lot of money and basically pour it into three things. And that was inventory, which you really can't flex on as a standard brand um, uh, team and uh, in marketing. And mm-hmm. I think those two last parts were really the, the, the troublesome parts of the, the playbook. One was... Um, you know, a lot of these brands were thinking that they were technology companies. They were p- pitching themselves as technology companies. But the reality is, like, it's a brand and there's very different margins and expectations for how brands operate. And frankly, a lot of these um, these roles were were probably overkill for what was necessary. Um, and then secondly, on the, the marketing side, you know, spending $1.50 to acquire a dollar in, in EBITDA really doesn't make sense in any market whether it's hot or bad so so for us like i think we've always taken a very conservative approach you know we we um we want to be profitable on um the first transaction but we also want to deliver a um, breadth of product and a a really great experience so that you stick around i think what we saw on the um uh, i guess like i call it the the lifetime value to customer acquisition cost compression um uh is you know when you launch you have great customer acquisition costs you have um, really loyal, excited customers. So, um, so they might purchase multiple times, but I think as time goes on, you know, that lifetime value doesn't really increase for most of these brands. Um, or maybe in skincare and beauty, it does, but that, it's a different, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but customer acquisition costs rise as you're trying to go after new markets where they might not be as jazzed about your, your brand or message. So then you have to either increase your product offering, which rarely works. Um, or you basically have to spend more to acquire you know, each member. And that's the reality that you have to kind of take on. And then you have to raise money to do it. So I don't know. I think to me, like, I'm pretty cynical about this. I think, um, <laughs> I think as you could probably tell, I think it's a, a model that doesn't work. So, you know, for us, it's, it's, um, it's a little, I, I think we, we had to be practical, practical and look at it from a very objective lens from day one, which was we have to build a large enough product assortment from day one, not just yep. rely on a single hero product. Um, and we also had to kind of differentiate ourselves um, uh, based off of the value proposition so that our customer acquisition costs would remain low um, as time went on because it was uniquely different. Talk to me about customer loyalty um, throughout the year till they, again, have to upfront that $100. What are you doing to say, this is worth it, this is worth it, this is worth it? Are there a lot of emails happening? Um, what are you doing to communicate newness? Um, yes, what what is keeping oh, yeah. them coming back? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to go through there. Um, the, the way I would uh, approach that is, um, you know, I think there was a, a, when we were looking at the transactional model, um, we analyzed like really um, three metrics on a cohort basis. So, you know, lifetime value, average order value, and frequency of purchase. Um, and I think for us, like, you know, we've been fairly data-driven from day one. So on a cohort level, we saw that these three metrics actually increased over time with the expansion of the product assortment, as well as um, uh, as well as the, um, I guess, the, the, the expansion of the categories that we went into. So we inherently saw both the units per purchase increase as well as um, the cross-category purchases, whether you were purchasing cross-category from day one with your first purchase um, or if you had a great experience with your first purchase, uh, which might have been single category, and you expanded it to multiple categories. So I think for us, um, you know, that that was a really good indication of, hey, this model of having a large product assortment is actually starting to work. Um, we're not going to be the everything store. We're not going to you know, try to sell everything under the sun, but we want to have enough to which you know, people are really seeing um, uh, 
kind of enough value um, from the product assortment to come back. Um, and that was kind of the, the strategy on the transactional model. Um, when we moved to the membership, I think uh, I would say really two things were important for us to really get right. Um, one was the messaging around the pricing. Um, we drop pricing by a lot, and now we significantly um, uh, under cut pretty much any incumbent or direct consumer brand in any product that we sell by at least 50%, average is 64% when we do our audits. Um, and I think like the, the goal to the $100 point is really to show tangibly, hey, you can make you can make your money back basically in one purchase if you bought from us versus you know the other brand that you might go to and, and purchase from. Um, so I think, I think that was really important for us um, uh, was to quantify and demonstrate to you like, hey, you can right. make this saving and you, you need to figure that out for yourself. We can't just like push that message right. to you. Um, so that's why I think we have like our, you know, uh, we designed our, our product pages to show comparison prices and, you know, so on and so forth. Those are things that like a standard brand would never do because they don't want to draw attention to competitors. And frankly, right. most of the price points are relatively the same. Um, I think in, in terms of the, the second point and, you know, to, to how we communicate that directly, you know, we, I, I like to think of it as like soft, um, uh, soft messaging, not like, yeah. Hey, we're cheaper, you know, because I think when, when you do that, it kind of gives the impression like this might be cheaper or you're buying a compromise when in reality, you're, we're oftentimes as good, if not better than a lot of the, um, the direct consumer brands in terms of quality. Um, it's more comparable to, you know, historical incumbents or, or luxury brands, um, so I think for us, like our email strategy has always been show, you know, show don't tell, show the products, show what we designed and, and all highlight the features that differentiate this from a standard you know, product to kind of lift it into an idea of like, hey, this is not your standard affair of like what you might buy from, totally. you know, like TJ Maxx or, or something right. like that. It's, it's <laughs> and, and no, no, um. Uh, that's not to say that model doesn't work. They're doing great. But yeah. um, I think for us, like we do have to differentiate quality. And, and I think that's how we do it is through our advertising and, and email marketing. Yeah. Um, uh, but we don't really like try to force you to join. It's it's really like you can join, you can sign up today, but like join in six months. That's all the same to us. But yep. um, we'll, cl- we'll keep a close eye on when, when that conversion <laughs> happens. Where are you putting your advertising marketing spend? I know that personally I've been served up your ad on, on Instagram. Uh, first question. So yeah, where's the money going? And then let's talk about uh, what's in that ad. Yeah. Um, I think this is the hardest question for any founder and direct consumer to answer nowadays because uh, I, I think the marketing mix is so it's, it's so hard to give like a unique perspective on this. For us, like the reality is we, we have, the way we run it is we have our growth marketing, which is, uh, this is how we kind of think of it internally. We have perform, so growth for us is like performance marketing. It's basically anything that's pixel based or attributable to a pixel. Um, okay. And then we have brand marketing, which is anything that is, um, that is, may still be pixel based, but is less attributable or, or harder to differentiate, or harder to track. And, um, and the way those two play together are, um, growth is really for us to scale and how we um, acquire members and brand is to actually bring the cost of um, growth down. So um, so I think in terms of the, the channel mix, like we've tried everything under the sun, you know, like from uh, like our affiliate networks to our um, to Snap and TikTok ads. And, yeah. and you know, a couple, I can be really upfront about this, you know, Snapchat and TikTok do not work for us. Our, our demographic is older and a little bit higher income than that demographic. And, you know, I, I think I wish it worked because the, the 
the CPMs are so low there. But right. um, for us, our, our bread and butter in terms of performance marketing is really Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, I think there is a strong, um, a strong, there has been a strong push historically to diversify out of it. People are, you know, you can't lean on Facebook, you can't rely. But the reality is like, those are the most efficient markets right now. And if you can get really good and smart about how you're media buying and instead of just like, you know, buying in bulk or, or kind of doing so blindly or through an agency, you know, there can be really great efficiency efficiencies to be had um, yeah. in scaling on Facebook. Um, and then, um, uh, and then also, you know, we also advertise in search and, and I think for, for us, search is a pretty interesting thing to think about because it's not like you're searching for a brand, you're searching for a product and then we can, um, we can hit you with an ad that kind of tells the italic value proposition. And we have, we have to do that very shortly. Um, yeah. and then on the brand side, like, you know, it's, it's everything that I think improves the brand or gives impressions, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the cheapest, but I think for us, it's the goal is we um, somehow get an impression on you before you see an ad on Facebook. Or if you do see an ad on Facebook, then you see something offline or through an inst- influencer you follow or, you know, something like that. Then the goal is the the cost per acquisition actually decreases, even if the um, brand marketing itself doesn't actually generate the conversion. Yeah. So um, that's how we think about, you know, the, the marketing mix internally. And then I know you wanted to ask about the actual content. Yes, I'm so bouncing around though, because you mentioned, um, anyway, in, in ter- we talk a lot about like email capture and I would assume that more memberships are going to sprout up. Uh, do you think that brands aren't paying enough attention to like the upcoming cookie apocalypse? <laughs> um, do you think that, you know, I would think that more would want to have this more control, direct contact with, with consumers. Uh, yeah. In a more controlled way. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the best way to put it is, is email is the best marketing channel of, of probably the, the modern era. And, and, um, and I think a lot of brands do recognize this in which, you know, they'll pay a lot of money to acquire a lead. And, um, and uh, you know, depending on how their conversion rates look like, um, it might actually be worth monetizing email um, fairly quickly and, and as a, in a really big way. Um, email for us is critical. You know, I think, yeah. uh, like I said, it's, it's not... Um, $100 is nothing to scoff at. It's, it's, it takes some time to kind of think about um, our, our, for example, our conversion windows. We don't expect to see a 30-minute conversion like you might see on a CPG product or, you know, something that is a little bit more um, brand-centric. But for us, it has to be a rational kind of quantitative, like, smart decision that you're making. So, yeah. um, so for us, email is a really great way of, of educating and nurturing the customer, but we don't want to prod them into kind of saying, hey, you've signed up today or this deal is not going to last. Um, so, uh, so yeah, emails, um, emails great for us in terms of nurturing, um, uh, educating. Um, it also helps us in terms of spreading the word. We see, you know, people, um, share emails or, or share, you know, um, share, you know, educational content. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I I think for us, like we, we acquire through, um, we build our list and acquire through performance marketing and those cost per leads or cost per acquisitions typically get lowered from, um, brand marketing, but email yeah. technically for us like falls under growth marketing. So we see conversions typically happening through email. Nice. Okay. Speaking of what's in that ad, what I saw, and it's the same as what's on your site, um, a great handbag. Um, and it, it called out some brands, just like you were saying, um, <laughs> yeah. if you like Mansour Gabrielle and it had the price and it had another brand, uh, that was, I think higher end, maybe, I don't know if it was a yeah. product, but whatever it was. Um, so talk to me, first of all, are you getting pushback from any of these brands about using their name? 
number one. Number two, <laughs> um, yes, are, are there a lot of cu- um, customer questions? Are they saying, is this made in the same factory? What about Mansur Gabrielle? Yeah. Um, so I think now we've changed it. So, so I know you actually touched on this earlier, so I, I, I'm sorry for not answering that. Um, we have two areas where we call out brands and, and we do so, you know, sometimes subtly, sometimes more obviously. Um, and, uh, and the first one is on price point. So it's for a comparable product. You know, what is what this brand would sell it for? Um, and then, uh, and then I'll, I'll answer the, the trademark side in a second too. <laughs> um, and then on the, um, uh, the, 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 the product details, you know, where, we, we like to really highlight our manufacturers. We do it anonymously so they you know, protect their own identities and make sure that they're you know, okay with their clients. But, um, but, uh, but we say like, hey, this is the same manufacturer as X, Y, and Z. Um, it has X, Y, Z certifications. It was founded in the state. And um, really the, the goal there is to demonstrate to a customer um, who's looking, hey, this is a high quality product. And you can know that not only from our product copy, the details, the hardware, like et cetera, but... Um, but it's also you know, using a really great manufacturer. And you know that because it's from the same manufacturer as these brands. Um, that used to be our primary message. And I think um, you know, that works really well when you're thinking about luxury goods. But I think um, as we transition from pure soft goods and luxury goods, and like you said, accessories into a more broad um, ecosystem of quality goods in general, um, you know, I think for us, like, that became less of a selling point. And you know, making sure that it's a high quality product, but the price point was um, uh, was low relative to the competitors, I think that became more important um, as a part of the purchasing decision. So um, so in terms of the actual you know, pushback or you know, <laughs> uh, trouble we've gotten in, to be honest with you, uh, in, in 2018, when that second part of that messaging was, was more important for us, um, we were a lot more careful. And, and we still are right. like, very careful. We take this very seriously, but we lawyered up very heavily, we were ready to defend this because it is fair use of a, you know a, a comparable you know trademark, um, uh, and it's a factual claim. So um, so we were ready to defend this um, yeah. very aggressively because um, it's you know I think it's consumer um, uh, it's fair it's fair information for a consumer to decide on. Um, when it came to actually launching, we might have received maybe like three or four letters over the course of the past two years, and these are from the larger you know incumbents. We've never taken a brand off um, because, uh, because, frankly, like I think those were intimidation letters, but they're not actually right. things that were based on um, legal grounds. And then I think, um, in terms of the, the comparable pricing method, now it's um, it's a factual statement in the form of like, hey, this product that we're selling is comparable to the product that this brand is selling, but our price point is literally sixty four percent on average, you know, lower. Um, is that something that uh, they might not like? Oh, right. for sure. But <laughs> this is something that, um, you know, we'll defend uh, very aggressively and believe to be true um, and is in the rights of the consumers to know that. Then, yes, absolutely. So. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it hasn't been as big an issue as, as I expected. But um, but yeah, that, that was surprising to me. Yes. You think you'll um, I have so many questions for you and we're running out of time. Do you think that um, membership model is where it's at, where you'll stay? I just know that um, one that outside of your your expertise or your categories, um, like public goods that sold by yeah. a membership, they just launched at CVS, the price point's higher, maybe they're reaching more consumers. Um, talk to me about, yeah, staying membership, yeah. Any, any flexibility there? Yeah, I, um, you know, I think for us, this has always 
been the goal. Um, it, it wasn't like we wanted to make money on on the products that we were selling. I think we wanted to introduce something that um, was genuinely differentiated from what I believe to be the rat race of DTC startups. And, <laughs> um, and I think this is our way of doing that in a very, you know, I think bold and ambitious way. And uh, again, the jury is out in, in terms of whether or not it'll work, but I, I can't see a scenario where we, you know, let's say pivot back into a transactional model. Um, I also don't think offline or retail will be ever part of our strategy. You know, I think, um, I think offline stores are great, but I think for us, like we are predominantly a digital product. The membership is the digital product. And if you need to be a member to go into a store, I think that might be a hard, you know, sell to, to a lot of people <laughs> um, and kind of negates the purpose. So, um, so I think for, for us, like the membership is, is for us, like the core product, that is what we are selling. Um, and the, the actual offering itself is the products. Um, that's, that's the kind of what we offer as a membership. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, examples of where memberships didn't work. Um, and I think there's a lot of examples of yes. memberships that, 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 um, might've been too early or, um, you know, the value proposition wasn't right. But I think for us, like the inspiration for us never really came from those commerce memberships. I think like the three types I always see are it's, it's a subscription that you get, you know, monthly or, you know, quarterly. It's a, um, it's a kind of like membership for discounts, um, yep. or it's a membership for like pay to access. And, uh, and we're, you know, we can be bucketed in that third tier, but I think for us, like we have such a large product offering that it's really not intended to be a discount, but it's like, Hey, just like shop everything that you need for your quality lifestyle here. Um, so, so I think for us, like, you know, it, it is critical. And I, I think like our inspirations, we take more so from, you know, the Netflixes of the world or the, the Spotify's of the world in which they took on in, um, a very kind of opaque industry where, uh, where things would be marked up to a customer or things. And they got in a lot of trouble, you know, early on, but I think the value proposition was so strong that yes. um, they were able to build a really loyal, you know, customer base. And now they're, frankly, like really friendly with their vendors. So, and they make a lot of money for them too. So I right. think that's been, that's been the goal for us. Yes. And I promised at the very beginning and I didn't even get into it. Everybody's at the edge of their seats wanting to know about <laughs> logos. <laughs> um, talk to me about the loss of the logo. Is it, is it a different customer somebody that is maybe flashy and again, flexing on Instagram with the logo? Um, does your, your, um, customer miss that? Is it a different customer altogether? Yeah. Um, this might be my, my, my opinion and, and I don't base this in data uh, or, or any research, but <laughs> I think brands are, are stronger today than they ever have been before. And I think brand loyalty is stronger, you know, um, brand valuations have been higher than ever before. And I'm not talking about the, the startups, but actually just like the, the incumbents, um, you know, people really love their brands, but I also think, um, on the flip side, people have become more value conscious and intelligent shoppers in which, you know, before they make a decision, they make a to wire cutter or a strategist or you know, they'll, they'll do their research and make sure that they're getting an informed decision before they purchase something that would be expensive um, or they might ask a friend or something like that. So um, I, I think in, in my mind, you know, uh, brands are here to stay. I think logos are here to stay. They might be not as prominent on a product placement as, as they might have been previously. But I think, you know, there's still a really critical part of um, a brand kind of being viral in an offline sense. So I think they'll always be there. Um, but I think that the difference for us and, and what we really see is, um, you know, I think the, the way I view it, it's like you have emotional purchases in your life and you have rational purchases. And that same person who has to have that huge logo on a bag that they might buy 
they might actually you know, not care about having a logo on their bed sheets or their cookware. And then vice versa, someone who's very particular about, um, let's say, having like this specific brand of cookware or, you know, towels or candles or whatever it is, um, they might actually not care at all about having a logo on on their their handbags, um, which I I think for us, like, is exciting in the sense. And this is what we, I think, learned through a lot of customer surveys and interviews over the years. But I think for us, it's, it's, it's important to recognize that. There is no such, in my opinion, there's no such thing as like a brand or logo chaser. There's just like people who, when you want to make an emotional purchase, you'll buy the store, you'll buy the brand. And frankly, you'll buy the markup and premium associated with the brand. But if you want to buy a rational decision, you know, then you might be a little bit more value conscious. And this is regardless of income bracket, demographics. I think we see um, this on on all sides of the spectrum. Absolutely. Is beauty a beauty category in the future? (laughs) (laughs) I've been... (laughs) I've been pushed. So beauty is really interesting. I, I think beauty took a really big hit this year. Um, I, I cosme- colored cosmetics, but I, I think right. skincare is something that I think we could do really well with. Um, we've been, I, I've personally been really inspired by Desium and Ordinary. And um, and I think like skincare is a really obvious, you know, uh, segment for us to enter. I think it's one where we have to be very careful because, you know, quality is so important there. And I think if you launch something that is subpar at a price point that is expensive then you lose trust instantly so we've yeah. been looking into it for a very long like literally i think two and a half since we started nice. um we have been uh working on it but it's not um it's not something we're rushing we want to get it right all right we will wait for it wait and see jeremy <laughs> this was so fun I, we went a little over but it was worth it in my opinion <laughs> thank you for hanging out staying staying around the whole time <laughs> Oh, thanks so much for your time, Jill. It was a lot of fun. And thanks so much for you know taking the time to research Italic. Of course. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.